You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Larnock. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, ACLU of Indiana Director Ken Falk emphasized the need for a new jail to the committee during the latest Community Justice Response Committee meeting. But first, your local headlines. During the February 20th meeting of the Richland Bean Blossom School Board, Assistant Superintendent Matt Irwin gave his regular report. Um, just starting out with the education fund, uh, there's a lot of different updates as far as just some of the things that came in with different counts. So uh, you'll recognize some difference in some of the revenues as they come in. Our December 1 count uh, was a little bit different than last year, so it decreased a little bit. And that's just based on uh, different categories of uh, disability for students have different levels of funding. Um, and then our ADM, uh, as a reflection of our February ADM, that is not something that they've actually given us the actual numbers on yet, but that's something that I put my best, uh, my best uh, projection on that as far as what that'll look like. They reconcile that during the last few months of the first six months of the, of the year there in April, May, and June. Uh, so between those two things, there'll be a little bit of some reconciliation going on with those two different counts until they get caught up and then we'll go on from there. Uh, that latter half of the last six months, I did not change the projection in that because there's still a lot to go there as far as well, what the legislature does as we get updates seemingly every day or every week about what it is that they're talking about. Um, and so that and our student count. So there's, I, like I told you before, that's a flat line projection of enrollment based on our fall count last year um, with like 2%, 2.5% increase in, in foundation and things like that. So we'll, there'll be more to come on that. Obviously, every month we continue to uh, update those. Uh, expenses um, were a little bit lower than projected, which is good. We'll kind of rein those in as we get through the first couple months of the year. Um, our interest on investments stayed really high in the education fund, just as interest rates have stayed high for us there. So that's been a good thing uh, for us, and that will continue to be a good thing as long as they stay that high. Um, so I'm not going to continue to project that forward. I might start being a little bit more aggressive with that because, as you can see, if that trend continued through the entire year, that'd be a drastic difference in that. So we'll probably start to take a, a closer look at that as the months come on. Then Superintendent Dr. Jerry Sanders delivered his report, providing a variety of noteworthy calendar items for the school system. There are just some uh, important dates coming up uh, that I wanted to make the board aware of. Um, and uh, some of those dates are related to uh, assessment windows. Uh, we are in the middle of the WIDA assessment, uh, which uh, is the assessment we give to our English language learners to determine if they're making uh, progress um, in learning English. And I think we're pretty much done with that, but the window closes uh, February 24th. 
SAT windows March 1st through the 3rd. Uh, iRead 3 uh, is March 6th through the 17th. And the iLearn assessment grades 3 through 8 will be April 12th through uh, May 17th. Some other important dates are uh, the window for enrollment for our preschool, which will start at uh, March on March 1st at 10 o'clock. And uh, last year that we filled up our numbers uh, by 10.30. So we'll see what happens this year. And then a uh, little correction in my report. It's uh, they're going to have an open house for prospective families on Monday, February 27th from 4 to 6 p.m. And then kindergarten welcome week, uh, which was a great success last year uh, from uh, for Mrs. Whitaker and her staff will be March 27th. Uh, through the 31st, uh, and there'll be a, a guided tour at the open house on March 31st from 6.15 to 8.15, and uh, that just kind of is a start of when the school uh, really starts to communicate with the parents, and, and they encourage the parents uh, from that point on to, to be engaged as much as possible, to stay connected with what's going on with the schools, because uh, we want them to be successful and get off to a great start. And uh, that, Brenda, I don't know if you want to say anything about last year, but it was really, I thought, really well done last year. And so I'm looking forward to another great year with that. The next RBB school board meeting will take place on March 27th. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on February 22nd, the planning department announced an upcoming meeting on March 23rd from 5.30 to 6.45 p.m. Um, planning department has been working on our county development ordinance and we are going to host a focus group March 23rd from 5.30 to 6.45 p.m. Um, this will be virtually only focus groups and um, the public will have an option of choosing from one of the following topics and they'll all be run concurrently together. So construction review, economic development, or environmental provisions. Um, each group will be hosted uh, via Zoom, and we will have staff members there, possibly um, commissioners, plan commissioners, uh, and hopefully councilmen may show up. Um, so again, this will be March 23rd from 5.30 to 6.45. We will be putting more information on our website, the www.monroecdo.com, and um, we will be recording those and taking any of those comments that we accumulate during the, those meetings uh, to uh, incorporate into the CDO. So, thank you. Next, the commissioners heard a presentation from Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative Coordinator Christine McAfee about the Monroe County Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. So anyway, I'm really excited to share with the community one of the initiatives that we work with here in probation is JDAI, which is Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. Um, and we are always looking at opportunities to empower our community and our partner agencies, parents, young people, stakeholders, ways to help address unmet needs for young people and families. Um, our ultimate goal is to divert as many families as we can from our system. We know that once people get involved in either the youth justice system or the adult system, um, sometimes it's really hard to get out. So what I'm here to share with you today is we have some grant funding to pay for scholarships for up to five families. And a family is one or two caregivers in the same household. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a mom or a dad. It could be grandparents. It could be foster parents. It could be aunts, uncles, who's ever responsible for caring for those young people. 
and they will have an opportunity to participate in our two-day virtual workshop. March 10th and 11th. It's 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then there are three support calls after that. You can see the dates on the screen. I don't have specific times, um, but those support calls are intended to help implementation of what you learn. Many of us go to training. We come back all inspired. We think this is going to be great. And then, you know, the next morning we wake up and sometimes it's hard to put into practice the great stuff we learned. TBRI, as you see on the screen again, is an attachment-based trauma-informed approach, and it's really intended to be used with people, young people, adults that have experienced trauma. Um, and we've talked about this before, and the reality is most of us have experienced some level of trauma. So this is open to our community. If you have an interest in learning more about it, please contact me. My contact information is on the screen, either by telephone or email. Um, also, Hope Alight is the agency that's providing this training. And if there's anybody on this call that just in general wants to learn more about what is trust-based relational intervention, what is it that we've done to bring it to our probation department, how might another agency be interested in exploring how well this might work in your agency, I would be more than happy to point you in the right directions. The commissioners heard from County Attorney Jeff Cockrell about a contract with Yasmin L. Stump Law Group the contract would be for legal services on an as-needed basis to assist with any right-of-way acquisitions that proceed to condemnation while extending the Karst Trail. Yes, this is kind of an agreement that we typically see at the beginning of any uh, federal aid or any really any project. This is an agreement with a law firm who handles uh, condemnation cases exclusively. At this point, I'm not aware that their services are going to be needed in this, but given the time frames we always have to deal with with these uh, uh, federal pro federal programs, we like to have them on board in case there is an issue with uh, acquiring the necessary um, easements or right-of-way for that project. This is for, uh, I believe, the, the Karst Trail. It will connect uh, the Karst Trail to Liberty Drive, and I think that that will eventually lead, that will connect to the city's trail so that you could go from Karst Farm Park all the way to the B-Line. I think that is the end result of this project. The commissioners unanimously approved the contract. Next, the commissioners heard a rezone request from planning department planner Daniel Brown for a parcel located at 7935 West Ratliff Road. So this is a rezone from planned unit development to agricultural rural reserve. It's one 18 <laughs> acre or less in the Richland Township, section 16 at uh, 7935 West Ratliff Road. Uh, this was given a positive recommendation by the plan commission on December 13th, 2022 at a, by vote of uh, seven to zero. And the background is that the purpose of this is to bring the lots into a zoning district that will allow it to be combined with a 40 acre lots that the petition also owns to the south for the purposes of creating a four lot sliding scale subdivision. If approved, the petitioner intends to apply for a sliding scale subdivision, all ordinance standards will require, will apply. But if denied, the petitioner will be unable to use this lot for a sliding scale subdivision as this subdivision process is only applicable in the agricultural rural reserve, forest reserve and conservation residential zone. Brown outlined the history of the zoning on the parcel. In the past, the site was meant to be rezoned into a planned unit development, but the owner has not submitted a planned development plan to date. 
the impetus for creating the PUD was established in Agricultural Event Center, or as I've often heard in layman's terms, a party barn, which at the time was not a permitted use in the Agricultural Rural Reserve Zone, but is now conditional use. As I said, the petitioner intends to utilize this lot with a 40-acre lot they own directly to the south to, to create a four-lot science skills subdivision. And once more, the petition was given a positive recommendation by the Planning Commission on December 13th, 2022, 507-0. The property owner, Brandon Powell, spoke and explained why he is requesting the rezone. Good morning, Commissioners. My name is Brandon Powell. Uh, I'm a Monroe County resident and the current property owner of 7935 West Ratliff Road. My wife and I are applying for this uh, this change. It's a, a, our primary purpose is to uh, be able to build a new home on the property. In order to sell the existing home, we have to be able to subdivide the property. So we've requested, uh, or we're going, we plan to request four lots because, uh, as was mentioned, uh, we will be able to, we will not be able to make any other further uh, dividing of the property for 25 years. So in an attempt to try to set ourselves up uh, for the future, uh, because of that lack of ability to change, we have proposed the, uh, the four parcel subdivide. The commissioners approved the rezone request unanimously. The next Monroe County Commissioner's meeting will be held on March 1st. In today's feature report, we have Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. In this edition, Civic Conversations host Jim Allison speaks with Marcia Veldman, the Indiana State Co-Coordinator for the Citizens Climate Lobby. We turn now to the latest installment of Civic Conversations on the WFHB Local News. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. I'm pleased to say you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Marsha Veldman. Marsha is the Indiana State Coordinator for the Citizens Climate Lobby. Welcome, Marsha. Thanks for having me. Um, I understand that the Citizens Climate Lobby is a very big organization. I understand it has some 450 some odd U.S. chapters and some 150 international chapters as well. I'm wondering if you could tell us something about its origin and its role as a nonpartisan climate advocate. Yes, I'd like to. Um, yeah, for, I just want to thank the League of Women Voters and you, Jim, for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, so Citizens Climate Lobby, if you go to their website, at the top of the homepage, it asks, our solution to climate change? With the answer being democracy. And I think as we talk, that will become clearer what that means. But like the League of Women Voters, we're a grassroots, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that works to engage citizens in the democratic process. In our case, it's around lobbying for effective solutions on climate change. Regarding our founding story, I think we have an interesting one. Our founder, Marshall Saunders, was a volunteer with an advocacy group called 
hung, uh, results, which worked on hunger and poverty issues. And in 2006, he awoke to the climate crisis after seeing the documentary An Inconvenient Truth. And he realized that his efforts and others working on poverty would be in vain if climate change made their homes inhabitable. And so he started doing presentations around climate change and suggesting actions individuals could take to reduce their carbon footprint. And as he continued in that line, he realized what individuals could do while important is just being dwarfed by what's going on in Washington, where billions of dollars were being handed out to fossil fuel companies. So one day he's doing this presentation and he's at a senior center and a woman asks him, like, well, what should we do? And he responded, what's needed is thousands of ordinary people organized, lobbying their members of Congress with one voice, one message, and lobbying in a relentless, unstoppable, yet friendly and respectful way. And that's what he did. He set up Citizens Climate Lobby, and as you said, we're a pretty robust organization. So it sounds like a call for massive democratic movement. Now, the Citizens Climate Lobby is a very strong advocate of something called a carbon tax. I wonder if you could define for us the carbon tax and explain how it works and what its benefits might be. Yes. So we support an economy-wide carbon tax where the money that's taken in is given to the people. So typically that's referred to a carbon fee and dividend or carbon tax and dividend. The the fee portion is applied where fossil fuels enter the economy. So upstream, as they say, at the coal mine, the gas well, or the border. And then this price flows through the economy And it incentivizes businesses and investors, people to switch to clean energy. So um, fossil fuels like oil and gas, they contain carbon. And when they're burned, those are greenhouse gases. And putting a price on that will, right now, we're treating the atmosphere like it's a dumping ground for pollution. What we think is that fossil fuel companies should be paying that price, that that polluting should not be free. Because right now we're all paying the price with poor health outcomes like asthma, heart disease that's related to breathing polluted air, and then, of course, the ever-increasing costs of climate change. So so there's the tax that's applied upstream. There's the dividend that goes out to people so that they um, low and moderate income households don't pay a heavy burden for addressing climate change. And then another key piece of this is a carbon border adjustment so that companies that are in the U.S. paying this um, fee for carbon-intensive goods and fuels aren't incentivized to go to a country that doesn't have a similar fee. 
So those are the three components of our proposal. Okay, it sounds like a fairly simple and probably very effective approach to the problem. But I have two questions about it. Number one, could Congress create an effective carbon tax? And a separate question entirely, is Congress likely to do so? Well, to answer the first, they absolutely could. And in the last two Congresses, a carbon fee and dividend style bill was introduced. In the last one, it was called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And CCL lobbied heavily for this bill. Ultimately, it had 100 co-sponsors on it in the House, which was far more than any other carbon pricing bill. Now, the other piece, whether it's likely to do so or not, I think is largely dependent on us. I think members of Congress who are really interested in addressing climate change and studying it, they realize that a carbon fee and dividend model would be really effective at um, addressing climate change. But I don't think it's going to happen unless citizens keep the steady pressure on Congress to make it happen. Okay. Sounds like another call for massive democratic actions. <laughs> uh, Purdue University has a climate change research center. And that center was the subject of a podcast we did uh, back in 2021 with Melissa Widholm. And we talked with Melissa that day about such things as the state's adaptation to the effects of climate change on Indiana agriculture. And what I'm wondering is how that research center might possibly relate to citizens' climate lobby. So as a Hoosier basketball fan, I'm a bit loath to talk up Purdue, but in the case of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center, really can't say enough about how valuable the work they are doing is. Having that Indiana-specific information on different aspects of climate change in various sectors, such as agriculture, as you mentioned, forests, health, energy, to name a few, is really key as we communicate with the public, with community leaders, and our members of Congress. So I um, helped organize Green Drinks Bloomington, and we did have uh, Jeffrey Dukes, the director of the center, presenting at one of our gatherings. And this was a room full of people really paying attention to climate change. And yet when he noted that Monroe County currently averages about two degrees two days a year above 95 degrees Fahrenheit, but that by 2050, if we are on the business as usual track with greenhouse gas emissions, that'll be 50 days a year. There was just this audible gasp in the room. Yeah. And I think it really demonstrates how impactful having really specific information about how this affects each of us is really important. Yes, indeed. Well, speaking of that, let's talk for a while about local action. Uh, in the U.S., we've seen several city, county, and state responses to this threat of climate change. And I think people are starting to take it quite seriously. Uh, for example, pending in our own Indiana legislature are several climate bills, such as Senate Bill 335, which is a bipartisan proposal to create something called a Climate Solutions Task Force 
wondering what you can tell us about that bill, how important it is, and its likelihood of adoption. All right. Well, first, I'd like to recognize the youth from Confront the Climate Crisis who have really bought, brought this to the forefront by working diligently for a couple years now. And they're, in addition to being diligent, they're pretty darn smart and strategic. So last year, knowing that Indiana has a Republican supermajority, they found a Republican Senator Ron Alting from the Lafayette area to sponsor the bill. That bill died in committee without a hearing. And I found that pretty heartbreaking, but these kids, they, um, they're relentless. And so again, this year, Senator Alting, and in addition to him, Senator Ford from Terre Haute, another Republican, and our very own Shelley Yoder are all on as authors of the bill. And since then, they've picked up a few more Republican co-authors. So what SB 335 would do is establish a climate solutions task force to review issues related to sustainability, clean energy solutions, and nature-based solutions to climate change. And that task force would then report back to the General Assembly and the governor. Um, the good news is that the Senate Environmental Affairs Committee will hear this bill. It's scheduled for Monday, February 20th. Citizens Climate Lobby has provided written testimony in support of it, and um, they've got groups lined up to speak in person, and we just hope that they take a vote on that bill that day, because it is the last day for the House to take a vote on it. All right. Let's get even more local. On April 21st, 2021, our very own Bloomington City Council voted unanimously for a 162-page climate action plan called Resolution 21-08. And that plan proposes to reduce community greenhouse emissions to 25% below 2018 levels by the year 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2050. Now, this plan is very broad in scope, it seems to me. It uh, touches on transportation. It touches on energy, on waste management, on water, on local food and agriculture, health and safety, and green space. So my question for you is, do you think this plan is feasible, and do you think it's a good way for Bloomington to go? So I'm really grateful to be a part of a community that takes climate change seriously and is taking steps to address it. I think um, that the city council passed this climate action plan is an excellent step forward. I'm most familiar with the local food and agriculture section of the plan, and I know it calls for strong action in that area. But it's going to be hard for the city to meet climate goals without state and especially federal support. CCL and our many partners in the climate space spent about a year and a half lobbying for climate action through the budget reconciliation process. And our volunteers logged over 225,000 letters and emails to members of Congress. We held 920 lobby meetings, wrote 2,117 letters to the editor, and 676 op-ed pieces, to name 
some of what we did working on this bill. And while we didn't get a price on carbon, the Inflation Reduction Act is the single biggest climate change legislation ever passed anywhere. This will certainly help the city of Bloomington in meeting its goals. So overall, 2022 was a good year for climate legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act being the single biggest thing. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Act also had some big aspects of it for addressing climate change. And then the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which was sponsored by our own Senator Braun, also passed last year. So it's good to see action. We do know much more needs to be done. And um, if folks are interested in helping out, we always welcome new volunteers to Citizens Climate Lobby. I know, you know, thinking about the impacts of climate change can feel very overwhelming. And I really believe when you take action, it can address that climate anxiety. All right. Marcia Feldman, thank you so much for talking with us today about climate change and what can we can do about it. And to our listening audience, thank you very much for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. And the League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that's fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we'll be talking to Michael Lippert, who is a journalist for Indiana Capital Chronicle. We'll be talking with him about the 2022 American Health Rankings Report for Indiana and Monroe County. And by the way, you can find all of our past podcasts at the League website, which is www.lwv-bmc.org. That's lwv-bmc.org.